Welcome to podcast number 34 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is January 22nd, 2019, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest today is Dr. Frank Colaprete. He is a professor of criminal justice administration at Kuka College, Kuka Park, New York. He's also an adjunct faculty member of the Norwich University, New England College, Nova Southeastern University, the Public Safety Institute and Civic Institute at Mercyhurst College, as well as the Justice and Training Research Institute at Roger William University. Dr. Colaprete served for 20 years in policing and retired as a patrol division operations lieutenant. He's currently teaching, consulting, and conducting independent criminal justice research in a myriad topics as the owner and lead consultant of Justice System Solutions, LLC. He has published three textbooks, Internal Investigations, A Practitioner's Approach, and Mentoring in the Criminal Justice Professions, Conveyance of the Craft, both released through Charles C. Thomas Publishers, Limited and pre-employment background investigations for public safety professionals through the Taylor Francis Group, CRC Press. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Frank Colaprete to the show. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing fine today. And how are things in uh, the greater Rochester, New York area today? Uh, For our uh, noted uh, New York winters, we're just starting to get slammed with the cold weather and we're in the single digits waiting for a blizzard tonight. So I just dug out my snow shovel and my parka and just waiting for it to hit so oh and uh, you get that lake effect stuff too i understand Mm -hmm. right yeah oh oh boy yeah wake up uh some mornings with uh you know eight to twelve and uh and drifting so Mm -hmm. all right now today for me in uh, milford it's uh just a bright sunshiny day i love it uh but it's chilly and uh we're frosty here no bad weather to speak of so we're having a mild winter here on uh, in southern new england as i record this on uh, uh thursday january 17 2019. So, Frank, uh, people always want to ask what you do. So, what do you tell them? Well, right now, it's kind of an interesting um, relationship that I had between uh, policing and and certainly higher education and training is that I started out in policing in 1985, and in 1987, I started doing a lot of training within the organization, and it led to higher ed. So, Right now, I'm a full professor at uh, Cuca College, which is on the Finger Lakes in uh, New York State. And then I also teach for some other universities um, uh, in their online programs right now. And it's real rewarding because the majority of students that I get are either those that are aspiring to enter the field and certainly trying to get a degree to get a little leg up as to what they need to understand to be um, more viable for promotion or even more viable to be hired within the field itself. 
or the in-service officers, you know, many officers that are on the job and supervisors and command officers that uh, want to come in and learn something more about the job to be able to give more back. I mean, that's so that's my joy side of this is being able to be a part of that, being able to be a part of their uh, their development and building their capacity. Well, and you just said some other colleges, too, and I did cover them in your intro. And uh, I also covered them uh, in the previous week's outro when uh, I, I thanked everyone for listening to the previous week's show. And I said, my next week's guest is Dr. Frank Colaprete. And I, did I say that? Did I pronounce that right at the end? Colaprete? Colaprete. Colaprete. Yeah, you know? that's fine. All right. So now uh, I know that. It's uh, like... There's like four people in my life that got it right, and my own mother wasn't even one of them because she came right from the because she came right from the UK. So okay, well then, I I stood corrected. I never heard it said out loud before, but in any event, yeah, we have a nice uh, intro and outro for you. Uh, and yes, you do teach a lot, and and you've all, you're also a writer as well. So we can touch on that briefly now, and then we can dive back into the early days if that's okay with you. Sure thing. So tell me about uh, your writings re- of recent. My, um, I've written uh, s- uh, three textbooks in the area. Most of my, uh, much of my work is focused towards the human development side and the law enforcement side. So I've done works, uh, textbooks and, and background investigations and, and internal investigations and then and, uh, the mentoring process. In fact, that was my um, focus of my dissertation for my doctorate. But I've also written a number of uh, peer-reviewed and journal articles that also target that in the investigative side and uh, and in the human development side. How do we teach the different didactic or teaching strategies that we bring within the field, whether it's training or in higher ed, to be able to refine those? And then my most recent research, probably in the last five, six years, has been more towards the assessment side since the whole field is changing as far as higher education. And certainly in professional development, you know, we have to justify the dollars. It's not so much uh, right now where the focus was is rolling out new programs. Now we justify, you know, new programs and existing programs by, you know, what's the measure of their success or is there any measure of their success? Okay. That's kind of a thumbnail um, for the higher ed side for me right now. And then I privately consult. I do a lot of work on the road. Um, I do uh, legal case reviews. I do um, private consulting and organizational plans and human development organizations. I do a lot of um, one-to-one training in the IA and backgrounds areas and then the mentoring with different organizations across the country. So it's, it's very diverse. I really enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we both know the acronym for IA is not artifi- uh, intelligence artificial. No, it's, it's uh, <laughs> internal affairs. So, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, so when you mention uh, IA, I, I know that you mean internal affairs. And uh, so, but we had, we, we had to start somewhere. So uh, how did you get started? Uh I started the field in 85, went through training, and then went to my first uh, assignment, which was one of the tougher, you know, tougher areas. The city of Rochester is leads. Uh, at one point, we had the leading number of per capita homicides, leading rapes in the state. Um, so I, as a young officer working on midnight, you kind of get introduced to internal affairs because the bosses are telling you, you know, you got to be out there doing police work. And the more exposure you have to police work, the more exposure you got to getting complaints from internal affairs. So. Mm-hmm. So I sat in the hot seat four or five times in the first couple of years and, and nothing, you know, never uh, a case where I was brought up on charges or any, anything was sustained. But what it did was is gave me a sensitivity to the processes to not only what I go through, but what the other officers were going through with it. And uh, well, I made a sergeant with five years in the job. And, um, you know, I said, there's got to be a better way to doing this. So the way organizations mostly work because of resources large and small is that usually the 
procedural investigations, uh, complaints of courtesy and things like that, missing property, they'll go to either some type of line or um, line supervisor, line command officer, and then all the serious investigations are basically held close to the vest with a specialized unit like an internal affairs or professional standards and answers uh, directly to a chief or directly to a deputy chief. So that bifurcation of the process, I um, kind of the perfect storm happened when I got made sergeant. Our department uh, got thrust into a very, very nasty civil rights investigation over a highway interdiction team concept. And we literally had uh, hundreds of officers that had to testify in internal affairs and during the criminal investigation process, which was both federal and local. And as a new supervisor, I got thrust into an environment where I was doing two or three or four or five internal complaints a day, where you would get maybe one a week or one every couple of weeks in the normal environment. So what happened was, is during the course of that, there was really no training. There were no... I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons that I reached out and um, did a lot of research and actually wrote a textbook on it was because, you know, you needed some type of comprehensive and systemic approach to how you do the investigative process because it was more hit or miss. So there's, you know, the officer rights and complainant rights and department rights and um, investigative process and evidence and things like that that just uh, – there was no centralized repository for it. So it was learn as you go. I mean, that was um, – as many officers and, you know, uh, sadly, as many organizations uh, treat the process of thrusting somebody into a role. And I wasn't alone. I mean, everybody since the beginning of time. I mean, my department's just had its 200th anniversary. And, uh, you know, really things don't change much, you know, over that period of time unless somebody somebody tries to make some type of change. Wow. 200 years. I, I, you know, tw- uh, uh, 1819. Mm-hmm. I, I have to wonder. It was almost like a constabulary or uh, a, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a constable yeah, it started type. started out of- as Rochester. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It started out as Rochesterville. It's just a small, uh, you know, the village itself of the city on the Genesee River is where it basically emerged. And I think it started out with three full-time watchman that was the first police department and certainly grew over the years like all metropolitan areas sure it's about 800 officers now and 160 or 180 civilian employees support staff things like that so almost a thousand uh people supporting what what type of population at this time about around 200,000. They say about 210, but there's an exodus again. You know, you can see this across the country in the urban areas, the exodus. I think it's probably around 200,000. Okay. So, uh, but the point being is that uh, it grew from being a uh, three-night watchman into a, you know, full-sized, uh, totally supported uh, metropolitan police department with, you know, mm-hmm. with a civilian support staff. So, uh, that's the model where you have uh, different departments and different organizations that uh, have very specific, specialized roles, detective, juvenile, canine, uh, uh, SWAT, um, you name it, but also internal affairs and uh, and detectives and, you know, and different types of, and however they decide to, to break up their uh, detective work and whether they specialize in major crimes versus all crimes or do it geographically. But in any event, um, here's a situation where you had a chance to uh, look at this situation and had a need to create a, uh, I don't want to use the word boilerplate, but create a uh, a standard operating procedure and uh, talk about best practices. So tell me how that happened. Well, it was, you know, you have general orders. I mean, every department, I mean, one of the funniest analogies that you'll learn when you come on the job, and I'm sure you've probably heard this a thousand times before, is 
and every rule has somebody's name attached to it. <laughs> so it was yeah. you know, some transgression that they didn't have a rule for before, and all of a sudden they decide to create a rule that, that is supposed to be all-encompassing, and it really hampers. I mean, we don't understand. Uh, we've never understood this because we're more politically driven agencies as opposed to process driven agencies and True. organizations or even a discipline. And, uh, True. So yeah, you, you know, you have the call a pretty rule or the Hoda rule. You know, what I mean? <laughs> you know so you, you get beyond the embarrassment of that and you realize that, you know, what was in place to try and keep people from doing that in the first place. Right. Um, the other was is that you have, um, you haven't, and, and you'll, you'll see this as far as organizations go across the country. And, and, and what I'm saying is nothing that isn't, um, uh, trying to find the right word. I mean, you know, certainly it's it's of knowledge to individuals, but, we're, you know, we know it, but we're really not sensitive and we really don't do anything about it. Right. What happens is, is that when you get assigned to eternal affairs, whether it's a voluntary assignment or an involuntary assignment, I mean, oftentimes the organizational culture overtakes the individual who goes in there because they think that that's the headhunting unit. And really, that's not what the purpose of the objective of the unit should be. It should be to find the truth. Right. And even in my writings, it's you're not you're not to be, uh, you know, an advocate for the complainant. You're not an advocate for the officer or the union. You're not an advocate for the department. You're an advocate for the investigation. And I think we see that. You know, it just continues to unfold in the political realm in this country is that we're not investigating crimes, we're investigating people. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is, is that early on in my career, the, the investigations that I was subjected to were, were very hostile toward the, the individuals, who, whether it's first line supervisors or internal affairs. We're pretty much very hostile towards the because it was you basically you know, upset their day. They couldn't get coffee, and all of a sudden they got to go take a citizen <laughs> complaint. Well, you're trying to do your job. Yeah, and and to your point is that you're trying to do your job. You're trying to do the job the best way you know how, the best way you were trained to do it. And when you're now getting called on the carpet or being put into a hostile environment, that could chill that uh, exuberance. It could chill that uh, drive. And no, absolutely. And then it, then does the uh, the pattern of uh, risk avoidance take over and what happens when you know to somebody that was doing good policing after they get burned a few times by a hostile uh, IA uh, internal affairs investigation they say well I'm not going to go down that road again and they and they take it very easy and they know the difference between you know hard charging and take it easy and and to your point if, if you had received a uh, professional internal affairs investigation that and you were treated with respect and given a uh, a fair hearing, not hearing, but a fair uh, way of, of the situation being discussed, then uh, you would you would learn from that going forward uh, about you know where it could be possibly where you might have erred or where you might have stepped over the line. But but uh, but more to the point, you would not feel like they're making it up as they go along. Like that kind of behavior one day is okay, but the next day it's not. And there had to be some some sort of consistency in the application of the IA investigations. Did I did I get that straight? And did I kind no, of hit that right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The pr the problem is, is it was either you were, uh, when those complaints come in, it's you're either bothering the boss. I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there are there are a number of good bosses out there, but mm. when your whole focus is in an organization is that you're telling them the officers to go out and do the best job that they possibly can, and often they are doing the best job that they possibly can. 
this is not what you what we've tried to be convinced over time and i'm not a visionary or uh, but this is not a customer-based environment and uh, you know we used to hear this especially this rhetoric when i first came on the job and when i first you know started going through uh, you know management training and but you, you can't take like we had the serial killer Arthur Shawcross, you know, and killed eleven women, robbed their families of their daughters and their sisters. You can't take a guy like him who didn't like the investigative process and say, "Okay, we're going to give you a Bigfoot pizza and a bottle of Coke and let you go." <laughs> yeah. And and the, the whole issue when you think about the investigative process from internal investigation, from from a complaint process. Is it very simply, you don't need data for this. It's going to be at least half of the people that you deal with on a daily basis are not going to like what you did because you're always in the middle of some dispute, always in the middle of some situation where somebody's going to probably be wrong and somebody's going to probably be right. Right. And many of those incidents, you can't do anything for either one of them in the civil suit and the civil claims and things like that. So both people don't, so both parties don't like you. So Mm -hmm. so, (laughs) that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, So what you have to do when you, in, for investigative process, for a mindset, for a culture in an organization, is you have to focus strictly on investigative process. And what does the evidence tell you? You know, um, you know, it's no different than a district attorney, and no different than um, you know a private investigator who's looking at an incident. That you have to say, what are the facts, and do those facts lead me to a certain type of conclusion? And is that conclusion the officer right or the officer wrong? So to just loop it back about culture within supervisors, whether it's in the field, um, you know, they're a burden because they're added to the rest of your responsibilities to handle. But when you're in internal affairs, you know, there's there's a culture in the organization that if a complaint comes in against the officer, you know, the, the officer is somehow wrong. So then you run into, well, we'll do the investigation, but there's not enough evidence to prove something. So we'll come up with a satellite issue to, you know, to bring them up on charges so we can send the citizen a letter back to satisfy the citizen. So you inflate your statistics by trying to say that you're cleaning house. Mm. Now, a, a personal statistic I'll give you is this, is that when I went to internal affairs, I spent nine months, my nine months in internal affairs, I was a supervisor for six years. After year one of all the field investigations that I was doing, you forward those up, they're archived in the internal investigations office. Uh, after year one, every year they came to me and said, come up here and come up here and work, come up here and work. And after six years, uh, a certain commander took over up there that I, I highly respected. And he says, you got to come work for me. And that was the only time I went because the, the conversation I had him during the job interview was this. I said, look, I go, I know what goes on up there. I said, so let, let's, let's accept that as fact. It's axiomatic, the culture. I go, and I'm going to come up here and I'm going to do investigations for you. And I go, you've seen my investigations for six years because he was a sergeant that was up there before he made commander. And I go, I'm going to give you recommendations for cases. I go, do not come to me and tell me to change my findings or even ask me to change my findings. I go, you have purview under command and control to be able to change the findings on your own. You can disagree with me and you can say, no, the evidence says this. I go, and I don't have any problem with that at all. I go, but don't ask me to change my own findings. And I went in under that arrangement and it it worked well, you know, while he was the command officer up there. But what you found is, you know, I'll just finish this little piece up. You know, what I found was when I saw on the road, because we reviewed the internal investigations, they would get kicked back to us in the serious cases to look at them for investigative quality. And I always used to find holes in these, not as an advocate for the officers, it's just that, you know, the process wasn't followed correctly. And you as an investigator, no, you know, you have to find all the facts. What I found was is you'd have investigators that would take, do intake on cases, do their cases. 
their hit rate for a guilty finding was 60 or 70% of their cases. Hmm. Now, in the time that I was up there in nine months, I had 75 internals. They included shootings, allegations of crime, stolen property. Um, mostly use of force cases would come our way. And out of those 75 internals that I worked on, two cases were sustained and three officers in those two cases got memorandums of record, basically retraining. Okay. So what you can't sit there and say is that give Frank all the cases where the officer is right. It's a random draw. Right. <laughs> so, right. So my yeah. point is, is that it, it really depends on the investigation and you can't slant those investigations because you're talking about people's lives, not only the officer, but the citizen. Right. Because many citizens don't right. understand that, you know, there's rules in place where you have to make arrests and you have to use force and, uh, you know, when you go back to when you go back to the Rodney King incident, when Stacy Kuhn was testifying in the stand, and the district attorney was pounding away at him about it. it's brutal, it's this and that, and he goes, "Yeah, he goes that." He, there's no way around it, basically. It's, you know, and I have a lot of respect for him. He was in a very difficult position that was being characterized under, you know, we're trying to gain control of this particular individual. This is the training that we have to do it. So there's no malice involved. This is what we're doing to, to you know, effectuate our jobs. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned a couple of good things there that I wanted to just touch on, and that was uh, the atmosphere or the environment had to be right for you to put your hand into the sausage grinder of internal affairs. I mean, because knowing that if you had um, somebody in charge that wanted you to slant things a certain way or to shuffle things under the table all the time or to minimize risk or, you know, whatever whatever their, their political uh, desires were, and it didn't have anything to do with open and honest investigations, then I, I understood why you shied away from that. But I, it sounded like this commander knew that um, you could you could say to him in all honesty, I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it exactly the way it should be done. I'm going to follow it the right way. I'm going to do the job the way it should be done. People are going to know that they can get a consistent read out of me every single time when I get on these cases. And if I'm understanding that's right, that's what took place. And during the time that you were there, um, that's how your findings came down. And it wasn't because of uh, the political winds told you to soft pedal anything. You know, it's what it's what a good investigation produced, right? So yes, and it's 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 really speaks. I just wanted to throw a point. It really speaks to the uh, that you had highlighted before, accentuated before. Is the integrity of the investigation that right. that that is paramount? And we you try making case against officers that aren't there because you're trying to make a point across the organization. I mean, it had a chief there under the civil rights investigation. I want to make a quick point. Mm-hmm. Had a chief under the civil rights investigation that decided that uh, we're not going to uh, use uh, the local DA's office to do the investigation. We're going to go federal, and we're going to have the FBI come in, and we're going to violate the officers' rights. Hmm. And one of the issues came up, no, a significant violation of the officer's rights, basically forcing officers under the, the threat of insubordination to give statements in criminal cases. It's, 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 it's against the law. Okay. But it was the expedient way of them trying to get to the bottom of this particular investigation because they had hundreds of interviews and they just wanted to intimidate those through the process. Well, what happens is, is you get individuals come in and there's, there's inconsistencies in the stories. Now, I'm not talking about a specific case. Let's just talk about inconsistencies. They're always going to be there. If you have a case that has no inconsistencies, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it depends on the gravity of the inconsistencies. Right. That's really what it comes down to. Or, you know, but the reality of it is if everybody's coming and telling you the same story, there's a problem. Everybody's going to have a different perspective of it. In the final outcome, are we going to be able to come up with a, a, a just finding for everybody that's involved? That's what it comes down to. Right. And what this chief did was, as he said, because it's, you know, he treated criminal investigations like internals. We're in criminal investigations. If you ask an officer, hey, you know, we're going to ask you, uh, you know, you're you're the target of this investigation, or you may be the target of the investigation. 
you know, you have rights. Well, in an internal investigation, you have no rights. You know, under the Garrity ruling, you have to give a statement, and whether it's, you know, count, you know, against your own personal interest, you have to talk or you can be fired under penalty mm-hmm. perjury. So what this chief did, well, you know, to get back to the story, what the, you know, the edification of the process, but what this chief did was, is he comes out with, after the early stages of the investigation, he says, hey, he says, uh, comes out with a video that's played at all the roll calls, and he says, there's going to be a zero tolerance for lying. And in that zero tolerance for lying, if you lie, you're going to be suspended, you're going to be brought up on charges. Well, at the end of that investigation, 110 officers had convictions for untruthfulness in their files. Wow. <laughs> Okay, now they lose the case because all five officers are acquitted. Now you have 110 officers based upon Brady and based upon the Gilio rule can never get on the stand again, can never put their hands on an individual to arrest them because their credibility is just gone. Right. So what did you accomplish? You know I mean, uh, you know, you, you destroy the agency. You know, I know. I mean, at the time, you know, there are political decisions made and things like that, but but you, you didn't look at the investigative process and what the right. overall outcome was going to be, you know, and that's the point, is that, so these things snowball, you see this happen in agency after agency after agency across the country. Right. So to that point, I mean, let's just talk about what, what you should, you know, what, what you see as being bad uh, internal affairs practices at, at the unnamed department that we won't talk about somewhere mm-hmm. else and why it, it's bad and then why what you know what your uh, solutions or not fixes are but what your solutions or best protocols are that would uh would uh, stop that stuff in its track so you know, can you talk about that a little two, bit? yeah two you know i think we could go on for a while on this one but i know we're limited for time but the two that are really just just jumping out of my head right now is is certainly um you know the it, it, preconceived notions you know that if somebody makes a complaint the officer is automatically guilty gotcha you know, that's really an issue you know that and I sat at a roll call where the commander swapped out before I, before I changed the sign, before I transferred out. And the next commander came in and would throw cases out that came in overnight and say, oh, this is officer so-and-so complaining, but he's guilty. Oh, this is officer so-and-so. He's guilty. Hmm. But, so what, what they plant the seed to get the outcome that they're looking for to go back and say, yes, we're cleaning house. Jeez. Well, you know, total quality management, quality control. I mean, we're putting processes in place to give better quality. We're not putting processes in place to destroy our product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, no, for sure that, you know, it's, is it throwing the baby out with the bathwater is another way of saying it. Uh, I think the other quick one, all right, go ahead. No, I, I no, please. The I other quick the other one. quick one is, is that, you know, the same name syndrome, you know what I mean? That, that somebody gets three or four or five, complaints against them and uh, you know they're guilty right and uh, you know i'd sit there and i had and, uh, and the philosophy is or the, the, the thought process that you bring to the investigation is this is that it doesn't matter if they've been wrong a thousand times this may be the one time they're right yeah well what are they going to do they're not going to talk about the thousand times they were wrong they're going to talk about the one time the department brought them up on charges or disciplined them wrongly or falsely so that attacks the integrity of your process because you're not you're not understanding that these people talk there's no way around it and that's how you will build your reputation so many of the investigations and i an officer who was brought up on charges five or six times was actually chased out of the police department out of my agency he was he was chased out in five or six what happened was uh, to give you kind of a a, a, just kind of a sketch or a thumbnail of it he was he was a a new officer came in very focused his bosses tell him go out make drug arrests that's what he does drug and gun arrests he's making drug after drug after gun after gun arrest you know for a couple of years and his bosses are patting him on the back and getting him awards 
And they're saying, yeah, what a great job because we look good as a section getting all of these drugs and guns off the street. And then, you know, it takes a while for patterns to kick in. And then all of a sudden you got people that are coming left and right out of the woodworks and my rights were violated. And this officer did this wrong and this officer did that wrong. And that was one of the cases that was thrown across my desk. You know, it was a case about a car chase. Um, uh, surveillance they were doing based upon some information they had. Go to arrest the guy, car chase, take him into custody. A uh, guy goes up, gives a full statement, goes to jail. He's in. He's convicted. After grand jury and after a trial, he's convicted. He's doing uh, state time. He's writing letters to everybody, you know, DEA, uh, FBI, Santa Claus, mm-hmm. and he's falsely convicted. So this comes back to the department, and they go, you know, this case gets thrown at me, you know, to investigate. It's like, well, he's, you know, he's he's guilty in this because you know all the other cases were finding, you know, he did something. I go, you can't. And guess what? The case that I investigated, he was right. He was absolutely right. He was only he only had a peripheral involvement in the case. <laughs> Literally, right. you're talking about um, the investigating officer, not the letter writer, right? Right, yeah. investigating officer. No, the, the letter writer had a, a record that was a mile long. I mean, a mile long. Rob, yeah. a couple of robberies out of New York City, out of New Jersey, selling drugs on school grounds. He was mewling drugs back and forth from the New York area up in Rochester, uh, bringing them in in a van. And, you know, the guys, his his buyers, one of them got snatched up one day and uh, gave them up. And that's how the case was made, you know. So, uh, and it was other officers that had collected, that did the chase and collected the evidence. It's just that this guy's all of a sudden name comes out and it's like, oh, no, he's wrong. Right. He's like a lightning rod. Yeah. And it was the one case that he was found right on. You know, I mean, I remember seeing him years after he left. He went to another police agency and he had said, you know, that was the only case that they ever found me innocent on. And I didn't do anything other than do an investigation. Right. It's not covering up. I wouldn't cover anything up. There's no reason to. Yeah. What you find is, is it, it, it's just it, everything needs to be blown out of proportion. And what you have is a culture in command, which is an interesting one and a sad one, is that they throw something out there and they make an allegation. And when you come back and say, that's not what you think it is, they can't be proven wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They can't sit back and take a breath and say, hey, I overreacted in that one. And they can't front end and say, Let's investigate this before we open our mouths. They got to get a. Uh, they got to have a, an audience with the chief and have all the information that they don't even understand that the investigation has, has unfolded, or uh, you know, the, the, their mug is in front of the media, in front of the camera, and they got questions that they're getting thrown at them, and uh, you know, all of a sudden they got to have answers. You don't have to have answers. I mean, that's what the investigative process is. You don't know. I mean, right. I can tell you the correlation. Just a a, a good correlation because I also did background investigations for a number of years and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was even more political, far more political than the internal investigations process, you know, sadly. But yeah. um, so what it comes down to when, when you talk about that, that intestinal fortitude, that resilience, that integrity, that's what it comes down to as the investigator. And then you have to make a decision. How long are you going to fight that fight? Because physically and emotionally, there's only so long you can do it. Oh, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and given the fact that you're also dealing with life and death situations all the time, yeah. and, you know, you're talking about working nights, weekends, and holidays, it's, it's physically mm-hmm. taxing on your body. Yeah, for real. Now, the other thing, too, is um, there's also could be a, a, a command culture of never admitting any type of uh, wrongdoing on behalf of the department or its officers. And, and and the uh, word coming down to internal affairs is to soft pedal everything and to yes. to do everything uh, to put the put the officer in the most favorable light. And in that situation, you're not doing the service to um, the department because 
the bad apples are getting a free pass. And the guys that, and gals that are out there every day uh, trying to do the best they can and to work within the, the system, to follow the orders, to but yet still be aggressive, see somebody that's getting away with, I don't want to use the word murder, but getting away with... Uh, oh, no, there's been cases agree- of murder. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, egregious behavior. Right. Yeah. And then it's getting soft-pedaled because you don't want to tarnish the badge. You don't want to tarnish the... Uh, the uh, the, uh, the the uh, the department. So, but uh, I'm glad that you also said that they, that can happen too. So, realistically, um, no, just to build. Go ahead. I just want but, to build on that but, point. Yeah, but leadership has to be doing exactly what leaders should be doing, and that should be the leader and not a uh, cheerleader, a cheerleader for one political uh, sway or another political sway. They should uh, be strong leaders and make sure that uh, they give out a consistent message that uh, the the investigations are going to be managed and supervised and that the investigations are going to be done in a uh, uh, legitimate fashion and they're going to be thorough. So do I, did I hit that all right? Oh, no, absolutely. But there's, I, I just wanted to build on your point is that that culture from what I've seen, when I've read in my experiences, that culture really, that, that, that's again, um, kind of the, the outcome or, or that outcome of the officer getting a free pass on, on problems or issues that they've had really is is, is a couple of different um, um, driving factors to that. If you're talking on an individual officer who's getting a break, the overwhelming majority of cases that you will read from the officers, you know, the incident involving the officers, it's going to be their immediate command because they see the officers as doing a good job, they made a mistake or even if they did some criminal activity, they're really trying to minimize that and make this go away because they're trying to save the individual employee. It's not really so much an embarrassment issue. It's more a human resource issue. Hmm. Where the embarrassment comes, where agencies try to cover this up, is when you have those in politically appointed or even civil service positions, those elected sheriffs and stuff like that, where they, where they don't want the agency to look bad. It has nothing to do with the officer. Right. And it has nothing to do with not making the officer look bad. It has to do with the agency head not wanting to look bad. Right. That's where you talk about the leadership issue and and the deficit in leadership in our right. organizations. The thought process is only to preserve their role. You know what? I, when I teach command school, I tell them, most police administrators, are, you know, I don't have to bash the whole discipline, but because I love it. I mean, that's why I'm still a part of it. But most police administrators and police chiefs are on a three to five year window. It's either they want to get through the current term or they want to get into the next term. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they're looking at. So most of their decisions are made from that perspective. As sad as that is, that yeah. that's the truth. I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, we don't have to see uh, TV shows to demonstrate uh, how uh, a police chief or the upper management of a police department has to be, have its ear to the ground and has to be you know, very careful to listen to the way the political swayings of the, orga- mm-hmm. of the political powers in power at that time, because uh, that power could shift and at any moment, uh, alliances or allegiances made to one uh, mayor or uh, city council uh, then all of a sudden puts them in uh, puts them in the bullseye with the reform mayor mm-hmm. or with the reform mm-hmm. city council you know and, and I think realistically uh, uh, a leader stands tallest when they stand up to uh, the winds that blow you know from political standpoint as opposed to uh, doing the job the right way and that to yes, me just, and, go ahead and 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 to add to your analogy, not to one-up you, but to add no. to your analogy, because this is an old saying. It's an old proverb. I can't remember who. It can, but these people also, you talk about them standing tall in these situations, but they don't stand taller 
when they're standing on top of somebody else. Oh, I know that. And yeah, that's the, the point. The, that's fra- the, the point. phrase that I've used so many times in my career mm-hmm. is, you don't stand any taller when you stand on someone else's ashes. Yes. No, yes, absolutely. And, so, you know, this is not the Phoenix Project because mm-hmm. organizations have been this way forever. And policing has never really changed. Yes, there's technology. Yes, laws have changed. But policing really hasn't changed. Corrections really, I mean, you look at corrections, corrections is different because there's many different philosophies that have been built into corrections over the over the day, you know, over the, the centuries. Centuries, really. right. But in law enforcement, it's pretty much the same ideology, the same main mission that you're trying to accomplish. Now, we can play with the mission statements and we can play with, you know, um, the different innovations and whatnot to try and make ourselves uh, a little bit more uh, productive and, uh, you know, and arrest more bad guys or reach out to more people or, you know, have a finger on the pulse because you're using Twitter and things like that. But policing <laughs> pretty much stayed the same. Yeah. And when you look at the history of policing and, you know, we talk about TV shows, I just want to make this quick point is that I love using as examples is how um, the media or, or movies are really art imitates life. And when you look at movies like Detective Story back in 1951 with, with uh, Kirk Douglas and you know, the precinct, the way it runs, the, the, the jokes are all the same, the, mm-hmm. the type of police work, IDs are all the same. What, what you find is, is the bosses are the same. If you look at Adam 12 and you look at, uh, you know, Dragnet and you look at, uh, you know, any, even Kojak, everybody hates the boss. Kojak even hated his captain. <laughs> so, so police command staffs are always portrayed poorly in, yeah. uh, in, in the media. But you look at something like from 1951, like Detective Story, you got, you got signs all over the office. If you watch this movie, it says courtesy is number one or courtesy's first. I mean, that's, that's been an issue since the beginning of time. I mean, sure. why are we still, ha- why are we still struggling with it? What, what are we doing that, we, that hasn't changed that? You know? So, but we, we talked about larger, more stratified organizations, but I think your mm-hmm. teaching and your, and your book would be just as applicable for uh, a small town sheriff oh, or yeah. a small police department. Am mm-hmm. I, am I, am I right where yeah, maybe because- it falls on the chief's shoulders that, you know, or the, the sheriff's shoulders to do the internal investigations as opposed to, you know, cause if you have one, you know, if you're if you're working shift work and you're the shift commander, and all of a sudden you you know you've been you've been working with your your team or your shift days or weeks or months on end, and now you're 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 forced to put in put in an IA role, you're really not in a position to do so because you have to go back to your uh, regular shift duties. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the following day, the priorities. Yeah. So someone has to be designated as uh, the uh, internal affairs person in a small department. How do you how do you do deal with that in your book and how do you deal with that in, in the way it can be rolled out in a small PD? Not to oversimplify, but you know, from the largest to the smallest agencies, it, it's really, it's investigation, investigative review, and is there any disciplinary process or prosecution that comes from it? Those are only really the three main points that you need to understand. So it doesn't matter who does the investigation, it's the next level is review. So if, if you're a chief of a small agency and it's a supervisory staff, that does, they would you know do the investigation unless they're the ones who are the subject of it, or a chief could do it. The next is, is who does the review in a small agency. That individual may be responsible for both. Okay. Um, but it really, it's not an overly complex um, uh, chain of command process. Is, is where I'm going with this. Okay. And and, and rightly so because it's because many of the issues you deal with are very confidential. And we we have I, I get calls pretty consistently from agencies, and I, and I do a bunch of private consulting and a um, um, trying to put this to protect you. It was a community corrections agency that called and uh, the former colleague, a former friend, colleague, 
uh, said, yeah, we got a got an internal going on here, and or no, we got an individual who's who's bringing officers up on charges, and then you know, then he's going around and he's telling the other telling other people about it. I'm like, well, it's a misdemeanor under you know New York State law. It's confidential information. You can't share either it in written form or spoken form or electronic form. I mean, those those records need to be protected. So the supervisor was brought in and, you know, counseled and, you know, basically written up and saying not to, you know, don't do this again. And that's the end of it. And my point is, is that, so I'm not trying to oversimplify. The reality of it is it has to be a simple review process because you can't have all the cooks trying to spoil the soup. And we've seen that over and over and over again. Well, and Civilian the- review is a perfect example and mm-hmm. agencies, are the, the problematic issues that that causes, um, but I think I think the uh, the designee mm-hmm. has to be given support either by uh, yes. management that yes. they are the designee. This is how it's going to work. Uh, it's a hands off process. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to do a, a thorough investigation. Uh, it doesn't matter if you play softball on Sunday with each other. Um, mm-hmm. This is how it's going to be done, and uh, and it has to be announced and it has to be explained that uh, there is a an internal affairs component to policing and. As mm-hmm. much as you don't like to talk about it, it has to be there, and mm-hmm. it has to be. You have to take the boogeyman out of the closet on that and say, "This is what this is what it's going to be, and and this is how it should work." And as long as it is done according to the way you said, a uh, fair, objective, and thorough investigation, uh, and given to a leadership that is not trying to sway one way or the other, but will you know call a ball a ball, a strike a strike, you know, and call it the way it, it, they see it, then uh, I think everyone in on the line. In, in, in the ranks would come to understand, okay, these are the rules we got to play by. But, you know, I think when it, when uh, internal affairs is, is not codified or not given a leadership, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, like the authority maybe in the yeah, organization? Right, yeah. right. That, that mm-hmm. they're not given the, uh, right, they're not given that. Uh, mm-hmm. That that it's it's left to, to be gray area and it's left to be, uh, it falls into the political shifting of winds as a Opposed to um, a uh, a bona fide role within that police department that has to be filled occasionally. So, do I understand that right? Yes, it's it, it has to be a, a part of the rank structure. We talk about investigative process, you know. Let's, right. Let's just revisit that for investigative process. It has to be part of the rank structure. You can't have officers investigating officer complaints. You can't. It's just so it has to be the chief, or if you have an independent body. I mean, some agencies do that. They have independent investigators that come in, but. So the chief may very well be in a small agency, the investigator and the reviewer. Right. Um, or you may have an agency that has a chief and a captain in a smaller department or a chief and a sergeant. You know, the sergeant will be given that investigation. Now, a sergeant can investigate another supervisor. That's fine. That's done pretty routinely, but you can't have an officer do it. Mm-hmm. So, no. so those are the processes and those are the, ch- the lines in the chain of command that you need in place to be able to do the investigations and do them where you would maintain that type of authority because as a supervisor in the organization, the chief can delegate that authority to a supervisor to do this investigation, no matter who it is. You know, it may be politically sensitive and it may be career killer doing the investigation on a deputy chief or somebody else, but but that can still be uh, delegated. Uh, sure. To be done. You know, so. Right. Now, 
I do appreciate that. And we really talked this out well. I really like the fact that we had a chance to, to chat on this on a, on a, in a more in-depth level. Now, the other book that you wrote that I found that I wanted my listeners to uh, hear about was your book on mentoring. So that is just huge to me because I, I think of this podcast as being a sort of a mentoring process as well for those in, aspiring investigators that want to learn about good investigations and good investigative technique from my guests. I think I always talk about mentors and, and the role that they play on uh, the growth and the potential uh, development of a, a young or a new investigator. Can you talk about your you know, your book, your findings, and, and what makes for good mentoring within a, a police department or an investigative organization? Yeah, you hit on something that just near and dear to my heart because it's the human development and it's really the, the, the uh, you know, the best way to put this, if you, if you look from an organizational standpoint or even a disciplinary standpoint, it's a succession planning process that we, we pay no attention to, if any attention to, in our organizations, especially police organizations. Hmm. You know, what you've seen is that, um, well, let's talk about it, but nobody really does it. I'm going to give you examples from the mentoring side. We could talk forever on this one. I'm trying to encapsulate it to meet your time frames here, but... The, there's a couple of different things. One is the the, the understanding of, of who, how do great investigators happen. You know, we have to answer. We have to ask that question, and they don't happen from taking a class. They don't happen from uh, their, their individual focused experiences, especially in smaller agencies. You know, if we want to you know steer the conversation towards that. They happen from the ability to be able to review and have the experiences of others filter into what they're doing on a daily basis, and then they can now translate that knowledge into their practices. Mm. And what we don't do, especially from the investigator ranks, I've seen this over and over and over again, as agencies, a few agencies even do supervisory training that's mandatory. New York State requires that you have a first-line supervisor school that's at no investigator training. Uh, investigators can be appointed as detectives or they can be tested as investigators and come off a list, whether it's civil service or whether it's um, whether it's uh, uh, an agency exam that's designed around that. Uh, other states, like you look at all the majority of New England states, the, the only required training for anybody is uh, entry-level police officers. There's nothing required for command officers. Uh, you know, I've given you some examples of places I work that they offer professional development seminars or they'll get stuff like that through a guy like me who does it. But but with investigators, what happens is, is you're an officer one day and then the next day, whether it's testing or osmosis or, or short, you get handed a badge and may or may not be sworn in and then they send you to a dead body. And mm-hmm. now you have to learn it. And so it's on the job. So from the mentoring perspective, even with officers, I mean, there is some training that goes on. If you can look at uh, supervisory and management training, there's things that you can either get uh, through the agency or um, you know, certainly seek it on your own through higher education. Investigations usually as the individual has to do it on their own or it's very sporadic as to when a seminar is offered. And then if that seminar is offered, if the department has the money to send you, right? there's just there's just too many variables that keep individuals from growing in that process. So that's that's where that emerges from is investigator mentoring. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's a much larger topic area from a criminal investigations perspective because I re- redesigned the entire criminal investigations process in my old agency but one of it was is how do you now start to introduce officers into not the legal skills not the you know where to buy the best suits to look the greatest as an <laughs> investigator running around out there it's those tacit or those experiential skills that they need to have 
that knowledge that they would use to be able to do an investigation on any case, at least that comes to their attention, or to be able to assist in the investigation, as opposed to stumbling around and trying to figure it out. So when do you read the rights? When do you actually hunt the suspect? I mean, most of that is intuitive. Every investigation, as you know, is different. There's right. no investigation that goes from A to Z. So how do you walk through this decision-making process so you don't damage the case, but build it as quickly as possible so you can get a suspect identified and then whatever the outcome is going to be, whether you take them into custody and, and, you know, if there's charges or how do we prevent, you know, further incidents with the individual. And that was really perplexing to me, uh, certainly in my early years, is looking at that because every investigator had their own way of doing things. And it was, well, you know, how do you learn that? And then when you go to investigator school, it was a two-week school, you know, Everybody who got up had, a, again, the instructors that had a two-hour block or a one-hour block or interview and interrogation was two days. Everybody had kind of a, their own take on what was going on. Now, that's not bad. That's good because it's their personal learning style. When we look at multiple intelligence theory and those types of theories. Sure. It was their personal way of being able to inculcate those types of skills to be able to go out and get a confession or do a case or close them out. I mean, so – what happened was that uh, uh, investigator mentoring kind of emerged from a much um, uh, larger study as far as managing criminal investigations and, and uh, you know, CompStat, CrimeStat process in, in my mm-hmm. own organization. But what it emerged from was saying we can't send – so the section I worked in had 85 uh, – 90 officers. So the section I work in has 90 officers. You can't send every one of them to investigator school for two weeks. It's physically impossible. You can't afford it in the budget. You can't pay the overtime for individuals to come in. Not everybody's going to want to sit through a two-week school. So what do you do? You do a job task analysis. You look at the necessary core competencies that they need. Uh, through this study, you say, okay, everybody needs something different. Not everybody needs all the ground ball stuff. So that led to really discovering the, the invest the mentoring process, which which is which is completely un, completely misunderstood across the board. Um, agencies think of it as traditional training. They may think of it as a, 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 a maligned field training officer process, peer support. Um, one agency that I work with was trying to develop a training. Academy is trying to develop a mentoring program that really, uh, at its core, was just a liaison officer. They're just trying to literally a whole problem resulting around their idea of we need a mentoring program to the 39 agencies that were in that area that go to this particular academy. That they just needed somebody to be at the door of the department after they got done with training to let them in and give them their <laughs> give them their <laughs> equipment. So there's so many different definitions and interpretations of it. It's kind of sad. I mean, the most recent one I saw, and I, I don't want to cast aspersions, but a self-mentoring concept. I mean, that, that it, it just doesn't – that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> no. Because it's it's based upon a, 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 really a fable that, that comes from the Bronze Age um, with Homer's Odyssey and Odysseus and – a mentor who was a character who was going to train Odysseus's son. Odysseus's son uh, was actually the goddess um, Athena hmm. because she was the goddess of wisdom. So she came she came to life to, to train Odysseus's son as a male because of the male dominated psyche, you know, culture. Yeah. But what that is is a senior individual who's trying to shepherd a junior individual, no matter what title you put, whether it's mentor, protege, mentor, mentee. I mean, they, they played with the titles. 
But, but to take it one, one step further is that when you, when you apply to invest, I had to give you that history to apply to investigations. What you have is individuals because, you, because it, you know, as we recognize, as we both agree, each individual investigator has their own strengths and weaknesses and they have their own skill set. Well, officers have the same. So you'll have officers who run around that make DWI arrests or interviewing individuals all the time or they're working alone in a small police department and they're the one who makes the arrest, takes the confession from a burglar or assault suspect and puts together the grand jury uh, referral and package and, and, and takes it through court. So what mentoring is designed as, and that's the way the system was designed that I put together was, is that what you do is you do a skills analysis for the individual and where the areas they're weak in, and then have them work on just those areas that they're weak in with the investigators that they select, not somebody else selects. That's another fallacy. They have to select the individual that they want to work with because they, they have to develop a very close relationship with that individual. So they will share that type of knowledge. And what happens is, is that really is a, a very small, you know, a, a microcosm of succession plan that looks at how do we develop the investigative ranks in an organization? So you may have somebody who's great at investigating, an officer, great put a grand jury packages, typing, you know, investigative reports, uh, running out leads, but, but they're not good at interview and interrogation, that they're afraid because they just don't do it. So during the investigator mentoring process that was put together, we changed policy at the section level. And we said, you know, so we got cases that we don't do anything with. We have violation of order protection cases that are felonies, that are churn and burn cases. You go to the house, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, uh, he's there, shouldn't be there, sign a, an order, take him to jail, file an information, and that's it, you know, uh, grand jury package. Uh, what we were losing was is just these golden opportunities for these cases that we were going to do nothing else with other than put it through the system to have the officers test and build their skills in those. Because if they make a mistake, it's not a big deal. Yeah. And what happened was, it really, you can't see, I mean, certainly, you know, if we had a crystal ball, we'd be doing things different throughout our lives. But but what uh, many of the good things that came from that was a district attorney's office that we included in on a, an on-site training on this whole investigative process part was, uh, was one was the uh, chief of the felony bureau that said that you guys are doing, he says, I'm, I'm looking at your process, you're doing uh, interrogations of these uh, violation of the order protection felony cases. He says, nobody does these. And I said, well, we're using them as a training grounds. He goes, this is perfect. He goes, because the victims never show up. He says, so we have, to, we have to dismiss these cases. He says, now with a confession, we can move forward with them. We can hold the suspect now and you know so there's unintended outcomes you know that you can't see that will come from those but the point is is it's not a traditional training process that people just want to you know compartmentalize or 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 view it through their lens of training Um, and i hope i didn't take too long but no 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 that was a fascinating process and the you know we had 24 i mean talk about data we had 24 individuals that went through uh, 25 individuals that went through the first um cycle. In fact, I published an article in uh, Police Chief Magazine, both on investigative enhancement and then also on, uh, on investigator mentoring. But we had 22 officers and three supervisors. Now, just some quick, a uh, couple quick data points. One was is that when you look at um, the model to do the assessment, the highest level that these individuals walked away with, even though that they liked what they did and even though it was uh, you know, an enlightening process, the highest rated category was the level of learning that they had in the investigative process. Uh, another was is that you had three supervisors that, that signed into this, two sergeants and a lieutenant that wanted to shadow an investigator because they wanted to develop their skills to understand the investigative process so they could supervise it better. Any, but, but um, I, I think the any, most, uh, any union interference to um, – No, it's – when you talk about 
Well, let me let me just wrap up this last point, and then I'll talk about that. The last point I wanted to make with this was is that we had three individuals that went through the investigative mentoring process. That they had two weeks to work with an investigator, um, volunteer, and work on the skills that you know you meet and they can work on the skills that they're weak at. Three of them came back and they said, "I absolutely, positively want nothing to do with that job." Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Is that bad or good? I mean, think about it. Yeah, that's good. It's good because the reason it's good is because you didn't have somebody who tested that worked to get into that particular role that got sworn in, that's working plain clothes, working, making 15% more, plus all the overtime they can handle, mm-hmm. who takes a job that they absolutely hate. They're mm-hmm. going to turn into the individual. If we can go back to when we first started our conversation, they're going to go back to the individual that gets burned out early on. Right. And they, they occupy that rank for 25 or 30 years, mm-hmm. keeping individuals out that really would like to sit in that particular chair. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a lot of good things. That, now, the, the union issue, yes, there's union issues at every place that you go. Unions, uh, you know, I, I believe in a union shop because that's how I had my protections. But unions are more focused on benefits as opposed to focusing on development and individuals. They focus on politics first, who they can take care of themselves, uh, especially the union leadership. And then the second is the, the seniority issue. You know, they try and make that the dominant rule. Right. And there's some good, but there's a lot of bad that comes from that. And this one of this was this investigator mentor process that so we did it in one of seven sections that we wanted to assign individuals to other shifts to be able to uh, work with the investigator. but So you can't switch the investigator's shift. You have to switch the officer's shift. If they're not on the same shift, they got to go to another shift. And there's protections to those rights and time and a half that they can get if they're working off shift. And you know, one of the union rules was is that individuals could be assigned any place for uh, training, you know, that uh, they could be assigned any time and any place for training. So we just wrote training orders and assigned the individuals under training orders. Okay. It was a quasi-training process. It's not like we lied, you know, but... Um, the so yes that was that was the way I was able to overcome it in my agency but yeah you'll run into that stuff I mean it's the creativeness of the individual supervisor how do you make this work I mean you have to it's like all of what we've been talking about it's it's there's processes and organizations and we look at it from an individual lens as opposed to looking at global we we, we look at to look at all lenses and say okay how do we make this come together how do we make it work without hurting you know hurting as few people as possible that's what it comes down to because not not everybody's going to be happy but this worked perfect I mean and, and they continued it for probably five or six years after uh, you know after I had left um. mm-hmm. well you know to your point uh, I, I think about that and I think about uh, the opportunity uh, to mentor uh, a, a new investigator coming into the ranks that you're you're developing a, a program or a plan based upon uh, a true understanding an objective understanding of, of uh, what they do in a satisfactory fashion and what could they what needs improvement and by match by them matching by the um, the mentee matching with uh, a stronger mentor by choice uh, in the areas that need uh, to need improvement then they can uh, get better at it stronger at it because there's a there's um, a pleasant relationship between the the mentee wanting to learn from the mentor as opposed to being a burden being thrust on one or the other and do I understand that right yes absolutely you hit the key and again not not to oversimplify, but the key to the entire concept is the relationship. Mm-hmm. The knowledge, the learning comes as a natural outcome as opposed to a forced outcome. 
Right. Mentors don't give tests. Mentors don't tell people, you know, you're, you walk people through, you're available when they need you. You're not there at a specific time or a specific day. It just flies in the face of what people want to, again, use the paradigm of training, or the paradigm of field training or face-to-face training or academy training or professional development. They want to take that paradigm and they want to apply it to mentoring. It is a different delivery strategy and a different mindset as that you do as how you build human capacity. Yes, I understand that. Now, I mean, you uh, had people that were mentors. I didn't mean to interrupt, but you had people that were mentors to you. I mean, there was times when you, in the middle of the night, you'd have to reach out to somebody and say, hey, you know, I got a question on blah, blah, blah. That's mm-hmm. because you had a relationship with the individual, not because they were an expert. Right. Because think of all the times in your career that you had issues that the people that knew what they were talking about, you didn't want to call. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Either either they were the experts and they were they or they were gonna give you some convoluted, you know, complex answer to something that could be solved very simply. Sure. Um so that's really the the root foundation and you have to look at the mythical and and the the literary application of that Mm -hmm. and how that is applied within our you know our contemporary environment. And 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 like I said, there's just such a misunderstanding, there's just such um because we want to, we want to paste, we want to throw an answer at a wall that sounds new, and there's nothing new in the world. Harry Truman said that. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. One of our most underrated presidents ever. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. and, you know, he, he said it very eloquently. You know, he said the only thing new in the world is the knowledge you don't know. I mean, the, yeah. the things you haven't, the things you haven't experienced, and and this is the same thing. What you mm-hmm. have is individuals that sit in chairs that want to look progressive, so they'll. They'll talk about quality management and policing, and they have no understanding of it. Community policing is an inverted relationship to quality management. It's it's <laughs> it's literally it's you know I, I you know I uh, here's here's where you know I have to control my language because uh, <laughs> going through this, I mean, I've had these arguments and these debates over this because I mean, one of the simplest concepts of of um, quality management is that you, you as the individual, for you to be able to have the ability to go out and be creative. And 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 take chances on the job uh, in quality management. Your supervisor is the one that takes the heat if you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, if 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 you think that you're going to be held accountable, you're just going to go back to what's the general order manual, what's the policy. Right. Um, so, but quality management says no. We're going to release you of that and make your supervisor accountable. And that's not to say your supervisor is going to get fired or whatever. That's just to say that to, to release the creative energy in a particular in an individual, they have to be able to have some freedom and some latitude. Well, you look right. at community policing. Community policing is supposed to be based on quality management. You know, you know the time-tested theories of W. Edwards Deming since the 1950s. You know, we turned Japan around and we can't figure it out here in the United States. Well, policing is like. Oh no, we're going to give you total control, but we're going to hold you strictly accountable as an officer. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. it not only is it diametrically opposed, but in this particular environment, when you tell people that, uh, this is yeah. not like, oh, okay, well, you you destroyed some product, and you know we're going to dock your pay. You can go to jail. You can right. get killed. I mean, yeah. so so these. The, uh, what do you think body cams are going to do to that dynamic? I I have a real issue with them because of uh, it's this continuous eroding lack of trust of the patrol officer on the street. Okay. And there's enough video out there from everybody and their brother. Now, the, some officers like them, some hate them, but you have agencies that can't do it. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest problems we came into uh, years ago, when you talk about 
you know, we went from straight sticks to PR-24s and PR-24s to ASPs and ASPs to beanbags and beanbags to tasers. And, you know, there's no magic bullet for this stuff. Mm -hmm. But you had an outcry from smaller agencies that couldn't afford all that technology and trading. So, you know, some you guys, the larger agencies are setting a standard that we're supposed to, that we can't financially, we can't follow. Right. And you have, so what you're doing is you're, you're trying to protect your own territory without thinking about the discipline itself, without thinking of the long-term ramifications. And here's, I mean, I haven't looked at the last statistic I saw was LAPD has 9,000 officers. They put a thousand body cams out there. So they have a little, what, they have like a 12% or lumber 12% penetration. Um, you know, 11 or 12% of the officers that are carrying these things out, they're officers and supervisors. It's costing them $10 million a year for data storage. I mean, what, you know, wow. Oh, it's unbelievable. Wow. Well, these body cam companies, it's a joke. You know, they're putting these body cams out. They should give them to the police departments because all the money's being made on the data storage. It's not the 600 bucks for the camera. It's the data storage is where they're making all the money. It's and like, the retrieval and the monitoring. And, you know, and then you get, you get a, uh, it's a very complex issue. I mean, we could we could do a whole show on this. I mean, another issue is rights to privacy. At the moment that they started doing body cams, you know, agencies, six states, uh, you know, which is all you know under the guise of transparency, and we're gonna we're gonna show people the video so they understand whether the officer was right or wrong. Or six states immediately passed legislation to make all the body cam footage uh, confidential because you don't know walking into somebody's house, you're going into a hospital, juveniles. I mean, right. Yeah. No, you raised very very good points. I didn't throw that out to be a red herring. I know we didn't talk no, about that no, ahead of time, no. but it was. I think it just no, fell I, I, right I into the. Uh, yeah. It mm-hmm. fell. It fell mm-hmm. into the conversation at the right time. I, I love talking about that because okay. I have the because of my frustration. My first primary frustration is the issue of there is nothing the officer can do that isn't questioned, and you keep trying to throw answers at this that don't work. That don't work. Right? People don't want to see. People don't want to see the footage of the officers. Right? They don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All they want to see is the officer wrong, and those are very small or, or a small number of incidents. I mean, it doesn't matter that you see something. If you, even if you saw something every day in the media, that's three hundred and sixty. You just have a number to work with. You got. 17,000 police departments out there. You got, you know, 600,000 police officers. My agency alone uh, has a half a million calls for service per year in one municipality. Right. Uh, so if we had 365 videos of somebody doing something wrong, it's compared against a half a million calls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're right. not putting it in perspective. And then what, you know, and if it bleeds, it reads, you know that. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, or somebody just, somebody has to make an allegation. That's all it is. Well, look at what we've seen with the Supreme Court nominations, the U.S. Supreme Court nominations and and areas like that, all somebody has to do now is make an allegation, and you're guilty. And that, you know, and that's the way it's been in policing. But now all of a sudden, it's like, well, oh, well, body cameras are going to protect the officers. Why? Well, to an extent, to a level that right. agencies can afford them, and they're used. Uh, but you get um, a local incident with us. Uh, the system that they bought, every time they're on a job, they have to get back in the car, take the body cam off, load it into the docking station, download the video, put the crime report number in there, put some notes in. Uh, not so much an anomaly, but, you know, this one female officer sitting in the car, she's downloading. Some guy comes, sticks a gun through the window. She's wrestling with the guy with a gun. She gets in a fight with him. Uh, he takes off. She gets out of the car. He takes a couple shots at her. I mean, uh, you know, there's a safety issue. The light on it. You know what I mean? That was one of the big issues. That you, you know, you got a red light on the front of this thing. You're searching a building. It's a target for your heart. I mean, you know, so yeah. it, it, none of this was thought through. It was, it, again, one of these answers that gets thrown at it. Yeah. Um, with no real understanding of the long-term 
problems of the long-term effects. It's just like, okay, now we got body cams. All right, what's next? (laughs) No, Frank, I really appreciate your dissertation on this. I do, because uh, I've not talked to anyone uh, from an objective standpoint Mm -hmm. about uh, the body cams as it relates towards uh, being a a tool to, uh, well, to increase uh, police professionalism. And for me, uh, it was just pleasant to hear that, hear that discussion and hear both sides. Um, That's a reasonable discussion. That's a reasonable Mm -hmm. answer. You give me reasonable, well thought out ideas on this. And and I listen to that. And that sounds like something that has to be taken into account in any kind of body cam conversation. So, um, so is there anything else that that we wanted to talk about that we hadn't talked about yet that you wanted to get uh, out? Because I thought we covered things pretty well, but uh, I want to make sure that you're, uh, you're feeling comfortable with our, our conversation today. No, I feel great with it. As a matter of fact, if you want to continue discussions, I mean, this whole investigate the criminal investigation side, I mean, the, the applications to this um, for mentoring, it's, it's, it really has applications across the discipline itself. And when you look at, and, and, I'll, and I'll give you the last example, is the, the background investigation process. I had an immense amount of experience doing internal investigations as, as in field investigations. Probably did 70 or 80 of them in that six years before I even went upstairs. And my packages were, you know, 20 to 30, sometimes 100 pages long. Wow. I got asked to go to um, take over the backgrounds and recruitment unit. And the only experience I had with backgrounds was when I first came on the job. And I mean, there was no, I had a background investigator who, who tried to give me some grief over uh, the single speeding ticket I got. And ironically, he was the one who gave it to me and didn't remember it. I told him to his face, like, you're the one who gave it to me. So that was, that was my, my, that was my negative experience with background investigations. And because of a political issue in the department, I, I got approached by the training section that uh, background answered to. And they asked me to take over as the commanding officer because I had an outgoing commander and a bunch of issues there. And I'm like, I don't even, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. So that was ground zero. I was starting there. At least I had some advanced knowledge in the, in the internal investigations process. And, mm-hmm. uh, so going there, there was no assistance whatsoever. That Everything I had to learn on my own, and that was trial and error. And, uh, you know, the department was under a consent decree for hiring ratios. Um, you have a temporary staff coming up. They used to have a full-time staff that everybody, uh, you know, were trained and in the groove, and they knew what they were doing. Now you got a temporary staff, temporary staff of eight investigators coming up every six months. They're rotating them in and out. So they have to be retrained, and there's far more questions that they have to deal with. A coordinator was doing all of the uh, – Recruitment issues at a recruitment officer that worked for me. So, uh, and a temporary recruitment staff that would come up. They'd bring two two people up every six months. And um, so, in that role, it, it's why I say it's 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 much more critical. And a role like that that you're walking into, like criminal investigations, that there's nobody there as a guiding light. Mm-hmm. You know, and the mistakes you make are mistakes you have to live with. You own those, or you know. So, yeah, yeah, I'd love to continue the discussion. I mean, it's just it's just a wonderful wonderful process that, that that cuts through budgetary issues it cuts through the, the personality differences it cuts through the competency issues and a bunch of other areas in the job that we see on a daily basis but we do nothing about we complain about it but we don't do anything about it well our, our time is kind of limited here today yeah. but that doesn't mean you can't come back on again and we can just hammer that one or two ideas and really give it a full treatise how's that sound no it sounds perfect all right frank well i do want to thank you very much today for coming on the show i do appreciate it um if people want to get in contact with you if they have any questions uh, is there a way that they can reach you yeah they can uh you can reach me through my website justice systems one word 
at Rochester, R-O-C-H-E-S-T-E-R dot R-R dot com. My email and contact information are on that. Oh, perfect. Well, I certainly appreciate you uh, being on the show with me today. I learned a I lot. Have to thank you. I have to thank you. It's been a wonderful opportunity. I mean, I, I uh, teach, I mean, certainly at, at conferences and, and a bunch of different venues, um, but certainly to get it out to a larger audience. Um, well, and you certainly are. I'm not in a jihad and I'm not here to sell books. I mean, I, I it's it's the joy of um, it's the joy of, and you know, I don't want to you know sound cliches, but it's a joy of leaving the place a little better than you found it. And the way I came in, there was not a lot of help. And after leaving, I had a kid who just uh, he made uh, he was this uh, officer on the job. I gave him a lot of guidance and uh, made sergeant lieutenant. He just made captain this past year. I've been retired for 14 years, and he reached out to me and said to me, "Hey, you know, you want to grab lunch?" I'm like, "Yeah, I haven't heard from you in ages." Comes in, says, "Yeah, I made captain. I owe it all to you." Wow. That gets kind of choked up because you, and I, I've had a number of people do that. You know what I mean? And more on this side of on the higher education side, getting people who, 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 who leave law, who, who are in law enforcement and they've had good careers, but now they want to do the next stage in their life. And this has been a wonderfully rewarding career to me in the higher ed and the training side. And so I, I've shepherded and mentored a ton of people through that. And I could give you a story from that. But, you know, again, you know, I know your time is short, but there, there is a true joy in doing this and being able to penetrate a larger audience. I thank you for the opportunity. I really oh, appreciate it. No, you're yeah. welcome. And I, I want to say also for myself, um, some of the greatest joys I've had in my career has been watching uh, investigators under my direction, under my tutelage, under my mm-hmm. mentorship blossom. And mm-hmm. uh, they know it and they thank me for it. And they realize that I had given them a great opportunity, but I really also gave them a chance to shine on their own because uh, and got out of their way and let them do the things that they need to do. Let them make some mistakes. Let them learn. Uh, give them the tools by which they could uh, grow. And that's one of my greatest uh, uh, feelings of achievement. And this podcast, although you know there w- there's going to be a monetization factor to the podcast, money is secondary to what I'm doing. And that's giving back to the community mm-hmm. that I've been a member of. And if we can show uh, to uh, young listeners, new listeners, or new, not new listeners, but um, new aspiring investigators that there's an opportunity to do the job the right way to be the best you can possibly be that it can be done with uh, uh, by following integrity you don't have to uh, you know shade, uh, cut corners to get the job done right or uh, or do anything immoral legal unethical uh, you can do the job the correct way and be very very good at it and grow into it that's the that's the thing that I want to leave with uh, my listeners so uh, we, we are kindred spirits yeah, Frank leave, uh, you know leave you with the uh, the the um, certainly the analogy of pay it forward you know if somebody does something good for you you got to do it for three other people i mean yeah. that i think that's something not only you do certainly in a, a much broader perspective but your listeners i mean if they've learned one thing from this it's something to bring back to it if they learn something individual that it works it's something to bring to others um, right we could yeah. become territorial with our knowledge because you know, we're trying to protect our positions or we're trying to look smarter than somebody else. The reality of it is, is the greatest rewards are watching other people grow. It's not not you knowing it. Can but, I tell it just a real quick analogy, just a real of, quick story? Of course. Very, very, very quick. I, I got hired. I'll give you the agency. It was no, the no, State no. Department of the, the Criminal Justice Services. Don't be yeah. quick. Tell, tell me the way you want to tell it. I love stories. State, I was working for New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services, and I was traveling the state. There were five regions in the state that I was delivering these trainings, you know, backgrounds and, and uh, internal affairs and criminal investigations. And one of the areas that I did a bunch of research on, in fact, it's one of the, I just just kind of slowed down in my writing because I've been so busy with other areas, but I want to write a book on knowledge management specifically in this area and in criminal invest and, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement. And, uh, 
and criminal investigations really has an impact. I spoke about that a little bit. So I'll never forget. I was uh, the the um, uh, assistant superintendent I was talking to at New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services at the time. This is 15 years ago, 15, 16 years ago. And uh, I'd done an introductory seminar in all of the areas that I teach in. What I did was I delivered this in all of the regions, and then we started setting up classes based upon demand. So so you go and you say, this is what I can do, and then they were able to schedule classes, and then they'd get a group, and I would travel to that part of the state to teach it. But I started talking about knowledge management. And I explain that concept about how, you know, what we learn, how do we capture that, and then how do we transfer that to the next generation? And, and he, he got so excited at the other end of the phone. He goes, would you teach that for us? And I go, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. That's the joy. That's the joy. You know, uh, and that's why I got into higher education, because the sparkle in somebody's eye, when you, when you make it click, you know, and, and, and they realize that it works, and they understand it, and they, and they can now practice it. You know, so. mm. I give you a lot of credit on your podcast. Well, I thank you. I do appreciate that. I mean, I I look at this and I I think about uh, the the lonely role of an investigator. uh, Mm -hmm. Whether you are you have to do everything in a small department out in you know God's country somewhere, or you're in a uh, department where each uh, investigator has their own caseload. There's very little uh, collaboration. There's very little discussion. There's very little opportunity for. mentorship and I look at those and then I look at uh, and I look at private investigators that are working as solo investigators they might have re- retired from a police department or they might be starting out and from some other investigative background and the the thought that um, there there's a dearth of information out there about best practices about how to really develop your potential to be the best investigator that you can be and then play the game by the rules do the job really well be you know be a specialist in your field uh, and I just look at it and I just say there's just such a, a lack of it out there I mean they're not, it's not being trained uh, not being trained it's not <clears throat> you know I hate to say it universities are not really uh, geared for that kind of experience and um, training uh, academies are still just you know know, getting people into the front lines you know they're teaching them how to be good uh, patrol officers uh, or first line uh, employees and and I think about that and I say you know there's really very little there so uh, if you can if I can in my podcast help keep that fire lit under the individual so that they will go out and seek those opportunities to learn more to uh, learn from others to spend the time and spend the dime to uh, obtain more information that can make them a better ethical investigator, well, then that's my job. And I feel like I'm, I'm doing it well. And I hope that uh, by this podcast, I'm helping to do that. It's uh, to inspire the uh, the aspiring investigators. That's what I say. And I think as you heard today in our you know minute or an hour or so conversation, that's what it was all about. It was about inspiring the aspiring investigators. So Frank, I, I do appreciate you being on the show. Uh, I will take you up on it. I will dedicate another whole uh, session to it one day where we can just talk just about criminal investigations and about how um, excellence can be taught or how it can be better still how it can be learned right it's how it can be transferred. learned transferred yeah, transferred transfer those skills I mean, transfer the, the whole you know it's not we're not mincing words and it's not it's not uh, rhetoric or semantics it's, right it's not pedantics right yeah you have somebody who has a, a person who's got 35 years in a job the knowledge of that the moment that they leave it's gone right it's just dissipated now how, how do we now capture that before they go oh man because they leave and they move on to their next life and 
There's mm. tacit knowledge that you have, I have, and every one of your listeners that nobody else has. They have that specific knowledge. How do you now bring that to the table to say, you know, this will help other people? Right. You know, that's that's my joy. Yeah. Mine too. All right. With that, I'm, I'm going to have to cut us short, but uh, I do want to have you back next time, and we'll just uh, we'll hit one topic. We'll hit it hard. How's that sound? Sounds great. Thanks right. again for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Anthony M. Brown. He is an author of three books, Move to Murder, Death of an Actress, and The Green Bicycle Mystery. They can be found at www.coldcasejury.com. It's all one word, coldcasejury.com. Cold Case Jury books are gripping true crime mysteries from decades and centuries past. Combining history with a real-life whodunit, each book reads like a fast-paced thriller, taking the reader back in time to see the crimes dramatically reenacted according to different theories. The evidence, presented as exhibits in a special section, is sifted and discussed. Before the author reveals his view on the case, readers are invited to deliver their verdicts on what most likely happened. We're talking about old-fashioned solving cases with crowdsourcing through the novel medium. This is going to be an interesting discussion. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do. And they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, my favorite detective stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friend. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.